Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. I am a little bit sick this week with the COVID. It's a miracle that Alex hasn't caught it, considering I've been unintentionally coughing all over him for the better part of a week. I think all that cachava he's been drinking has been paying off. We did manage to talk with a couple of people who we thought you might want to hear from. Specifically, what we set out to do over the last couple of days was glean insights for listeners and readers about what's happening in the aftermarket of the startup world. What we mean by this are the so-called secondary platforms that either buy up startup shares that were previously owned by startup founders, or their employees, or their investors, or else the marketplaces that facilitate the buying and selling of those shares. Toward that end, we reached out to Justin Fishner wolfson a co-founder and the CEO of 137 Ventures, an outfit that lends out money so that startup founders and employees can buy their shares before they maybe have enough money on their own to do so. 137 Ventures also seizes the opportunity to buy startup shares outright from these same employees and founders. We caught Justin on a trip to Crete in Greece, so if he sounds tired, that's because he was. I think it was something like 1 a.m. local time for him when we talked. But he wasn't too tired to make a number of observations, including that when it comes to the secondary market right now, there really isn't a whole lot going on, mostly because people aren't sure how to value shares right now in this highly volatile market. Asked, for example, if he's seeing employees selling their shares for steep discounts, including employees who are getting laid off from their jobs, he said it's not a trend, not yet anyway. I think valuations in the private markets are slow to change. People Mm -hmm. are waiting to see what things are actually worth. The problem, he said, ties to the public markets where you've got even very large companies moving five to 10 percentage points a day without specific news. Like this isn't an earnings call, right? That's driving the price. Because it's hard to know what anything is worth on any given day, he added, that's slowing down not just the secondary buying and selling of shares, but also causing strong companies to think twice about trying to raise more primary capital in this environment. When the private markets, I think things are mostly just slowing down while people wait to see whether or not pricing is something that you could approximate today, whether or not it gets worse from here, whether or not it gets better from here. I think people are just waiting. And any of the primary rounds or things that you're noticing are being driven by companies need to raise money as opposed to any opportunistic choice to raise capital. Indeed, he said there's a direct correlation between companies and individuals who sell their shares right now. Both are in comparatively dire straits. None of the really strong companies with strong balance sheets are going to raise money in this environment. They're going to try to put it off for as long as they can. And I think the same is true with founders and executives, right? If your company is doing really well, there's a lot of volatility. Why do you want to take a price that's not a great price or at least a reasonable price? You can wait a few quarters, see how things settle out and get a better deal later. We'll have more on the topic coming up via a conversation with a secondary platform called Forge Global that went public via SPAC earlier this year. And that is led by longtime Silicon Valley operator and investor Kelly Rodriguez. Rodriguez made time for us early this morning, and we think you'll enjoy getting his view on what's happening too. But first, a word from our sponsor. Seed Invest takes some of the pain out of the fundraising process. 
allowing founders to spend less time pitching investors and more time building. SeedInvest has a community of more than 600,000 individual and accredited investors who combined have played a role in successful raises for 250-plus startups. Whether you're raising pre-seed to Series C, SeedInvest is ready to help you get there. Find out more and apply today at go.seedinvest.com VC. That's go.seedinvest.com VC. This morning, we caught up with Kelly Rodriguez, CEO of Forge Global, which enables private company shareholders to trade private company shares with accredited investors. Here's that conversation. Kelly, it's great to be talking to you again. It's been a couple of years. And in fact, I guess I owe you very belated congratulations on becoming a publicly traded company last year. It's actually more recent than that. It was March 22nd that we listed, but it feels like a year has passed. Was it in March of this year? That makes it all the more incredible considering, I guess, what's happened in the SPAC market since. And also, congratulations because your stock seems like it's performing pretty well. I mean, everything is getting murdered out there. People have been asking me whether we're counter-cyclical, and I don't know the answer to this, but people who heard us on our roadshow concluded that the private market needs a forge and the public markets would benefit by investing in forge as a proxy for the private market. So do do with that what you will. No one could really give, give me the complete answer. I've asked our bankers, but yeah, we're pretty happy with where it's trading. The private market is so, so massive. And again, people want insight into what's happening there and forge does give it to them, which is why we wanted to talk to you today. So Kelly, your team had also sent over some really interesting information regarding where prices are heading, but I just wondered if you could share a little bit about what you are seeing. The data I saw was that prices were trading down 16% from their private market valuations. What are you seeing right now? So I'd say if you if you take a look at what we what we published about price difference between the end of Q4 and the end of Q1, clearly the the Russia war in February and what we've been describing as the trifecta of interest rates and inflation is is now hitting the private markets. The private markets are not devoid of impact from volatility in the broader market. Now, what we're seeing is there's a bit of a latency to it. There's less day-to-day volatility in terms of trading frequency and so we're seeing about a 9% decrease between the end of Q4 and the end of Q1. I'd say if you look at it month to month, it looks a little different because February with the war was quite an impact. I'd say the big things though now, since the Q1 data has been released, has been really a, a, a dynamic, which we described in our earnings call as this price discovery equilibrium. We're watching buyers want to pay and what sellers want to sell at, because mm-hmm. that really governs volume. And then what they ultimately trade at tells you where the market is in terms of the actual pricing. So when I quote that number of 9%, those are specifically companies that traded in Q1 that also traded in Q4. And so here are a couple of dynamics. First dynamic is sellers, the supply of private shares right now is higher than it's ever been in history by a lot. There's a ton of sell interest out in the market, and they're trying to find a buyer that will meet them at their price expectation. 
And this concept of equilibrium is when those spreads are fairly narrow and trading happens. We're in a period right now of sustained disequilibrium. The range is too high for a lot of trading to happen. But what's interesting is if you look at some of the leading indicators that we see now, we're seeing a higher percentage of sellers now at the end of May willing to discount their shares to get a deal done. That number has gone up over the, just the last month that's indicating that sellers are starting to get real about what it takes if they want to sell their shares. One of the comments I made previously was that if you sold shares or you saw shares sell in 2021, you might still think in Q1 of 22, you can get that same price, but mm -hmm. you can't. And so that relinquishing of that hope of that previous period is now sinking in and sellers are getting more realistic and, and are willing to discount more than they previously were. But here's the rub. More buyers are expecting discounts than mm -hmm. previous. So buyers are watching the market too and saying, where's the bottom? I want a discount. And so that condition persists through the end of May. And we've got some really specific numbers. So companies are trading still at premiums of their last IPO price. People don't know this. While the discounts have been significant, the trades that are trading are still trading at about a 24% premium of their last published rounds, which means that even though trading has come down, investors that came in early in the last round are still getting a premium over that. It was a 58% premium, I should point out, in Q4. So it's dropped pretty dramatically, but people are still buying in or selling or making trades at a premium from the last round. That is really interesting and, and somewhat surprising. Kelly, in terms of the buyers, and are these people that are coming out of startups and are being laid off? I don't know if you would see deal activity from a Tiger or a SoftBank, some of these firms that pretty plainly need liquidity right now. If you can maybe just drill down a little bit and tell us where that supply is coming from, that would be great. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. So as we've reported previously, if you look at our last year numbers, we traded about 3.2 billion of transaction volume. We had a big year. And since we've spoken, Forge has gotten four times the size. So last year was a big year for IPOs. It was a big year for Forge. We had a couple of record-breaking quarters that were close to a billion dollars a quarter. The volumes have come down pretty significantly. I think our volume in Q1 was in the 400 to $500 million range. The sellers, the big sellers, the volume of sellers are coming from individual employees and individual holders, the institutional side of the business. If you mention Tiger, any of the hedge funds, any big VC firms, capital markets desks, that makes up 50% of our business generally. Today, those institutional players are buyers. They're not sellers because they don't need to be a seller. If they're a long-term holder of a private share stock and that company is going to go public in the next two, four, seven years, then they have no need unless they're in dire need of liquidity to sell at a discount in Q1, Q2. I would say institutions are really the price setter because they're the ones that can come in and say, we're willing to pay X for a big block. And if people see that price discovery on our platform, then others will sell at that price as well. So to answer your question very specifically, we have an unprecedented number of individual named sellers more than ever. And the majority of those sellers are individuals. And they need liquidity. I mean, they got kids going to college, they're going to buy a house, or they just generally in this time want to take some money off the table because there's a question about perhaps their diversification and how big of a holding their private stock makes up in their total net worth. 
And so people are wanting to sell. And look, this is a trend that we've seen coming for a couple of years. People who work for these companies need to have access at periodic levels to get liquidity. And that hasn't changed. It's just that the market is tough on sellers right now. Kelly, you were talking about individuals wanting to sell. We've heard about how LPs are in a little bit of a quandary because their portfolios are imbalanced. Their private shares now represent much more of their allocation than they had predicted. So are you not seeing those institutions trying to dump their private stock on your platform? We haven't seen that. And I would say, Alex, that if you if you think about just the natural balancing of what happens when the public securities somebody holds are down 38% while their private securities are down 17 overall, then that, that looks like an imbalanced portfolio based on what valuations look like in the public markets two quarters ago. But I'm not seeing a reaction to that. And part of the reason why I'm not seeing it is because if you take a look at the growth rate of many of the most sought after private names, and you take a look at what's happened right now in terms of price discovery and liquidity in the private markets, if you just sit back and wait for two more quarters, say one year, and that company's putting up 50 to 100% year over year annual growth rate, as an institutional investor myself, I would be more inclined to wait than try and exit something that's still throwing up their numbers. Now, if you're looking at SPACs, and you're looking at companies that aren't performing, that may be a different story. Because if you're not hitting your numbers, even in a good market, given the valuations that existed privately and still persist today, then you could make the argument that people would start to hit the exit if they can get out. Kelly, also, you talked about these buzzy companies. Are you seeing shares of certain companies that were not really accessible before because the company was growing so quickly and nobody wanted to get rid of their shares and suddenly they're showing up on your platform? Every quarter, we have a big chunk of names that never traded before, either because they just became a unicorn and people watch our platform for that, or because they've reached a point of maturity where the company or its employees have decided they want to go ahead and start allowing sales. So that's a phenomenon that happens every quarter. But in Q1, that was bigger than any quarter historically. So the new names that came on Forge in Q1 were record-breaking. Can you share some of those for us? I don't think we've published it. We came out of our annual presentation and our recent investor conferences with that question. We are considering now, we haven't committed to it, publishing the number of new names per period that are appearing. And so right now I'm not disclosing it, but if we do and start disclosing it, We'd love to talk with you about it because we think it's important for people to watch the trend of the private market Mm -hmm. as more and more companies trade. As you know, we've traded in about between 450 and 500 names. So you should assume that the number of interested sellers is in the several, several hundreds, and some of them haven't made their first trade. If you look across sectors, can you say which types of companies seem to be holding up their valuations better than others? Yeah, sure. So I've got a few examples. One of the companies we track and have traded on the platform is Affirm, who's now public. And if you take a look at where they're trading right now, they're down 56% from their IPO price, but up more than 70% from the last round pre-IPO trading that happened. So that's an example of a high growth fintech. Those multiples have come down significantly because they were in the high 20s, middle of last year. 
And now I think investor sentiment in the public market has shifted a bit. And now the high growth are valued in the public markets in the low double digits. So think 10, 11, 12 times as opposed to, to in the high 20s. So it's not unusual for an firm to be down 56% if they were trading in the 20s and now they're trading in the, in the mid-low teens. Kelly, if you're an investor in a firm or you've got a firm shares, what do you do with them right now? Klarna's way down, a firm's shifting down. To your point, do you get rid of a company's shares right now or do you hang on to them? Well, here's the analogy I've been using, and I've been using this for about a year, year and a half since the pandemic started affecting pricing in the middle of 2020. If you think about a company that's growing at the rate that a firm continues to grow at, and you make an argument that, okay, they're overvalued by 30%. Okay, wait a year. It's like real estate in Marin. If you think it's too expensive, wait a year and see what happens. Now, with interest rates going up, that might not be a great analogy, but these are highly sought after businesses that have significant, sustainable gross margin profile and a growth rate. And you could say, well, it's not worth 28 times. Okay, if they're doubling every year, then the price you're paying right now is 14 times next year. And that's what I think the logic is for much of the tech sector, and it has been, and we're in a tough market right now. And maybe they don't go back up to 28 times. Maybe they settle in at 20, but people are still going to pay premiums, good market or bad market, for a company that's throwing up organic growth of 50 to 100% a year and gross margins in the 70 to 90. So am I a buyer of a firm right now? I'm like everybody else. I'm, I'm waiting and watching, but I think it's a great company and I would invest in it. I'm wanting to see where the market shakes out. And I think a lot of that's going on in the private market. In fact, when the pandemic hit, we were one of the biggest marketplaces, Connie, you remember when we last spoke for Airbnb. And we had traded somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 million of Airbnb and people wanted discounting of Airbnb by about 35%. Mm -hmm. And it stalled trading for about six weeks. But when it finally did trade at the discounts that the institutional buyers wanted, then the volume went crazy and went crazy at Forge. Forge had four consecutive record-breaking volume quarters because that price discovery equilibrium was met. And so the high demand was met with high supply and, and the markets took off again. And I think we're going to see that at some point. We just can't predict when. So let me just say this last point about a firm. If I bought a firm on the last pre-public round price, I'm still up considerably and I'm probably sitting and holding. I'm not selling in a down market because I'm up and I'm going to probably be up more when the market shakes out. Whether that's two quarters or four quarters, I'm still ahead of the game. Kelly, following up on Connie's question, what sectors are you seeing the most volatility in? Well, we don't do what I would call detailed sector analysis, but I'd say if you look at what's going on in the public market, high growth fintech has taken a multiple beating, but certain bioscience sectors are still kicking butt. We look at Aura Biosciences in their last private round. I mean, they're up 18% from the IPO and 2000% from the last private round. So I'd say broadly speaking, I would answer the question this way, Alex, if you are a high growth technology company that's throwing up huge cash burn losses and you're public, you're probably getting really hit. So if you look at a company like Market Access, which is a, a digital platform for buying and selling fixed income, that's trading at 14 or 15 times with a nice growth rate, profitable. And they were trading at 16 times before the market went down. So they're holding really steady. Their growth rate isn't as high as some of the high growth fintech companies, but at 20 to 30%, it's attractive they're making money and their stock price multiples holding up. But if you're losing a lot of money 
I don't care if you're a SaaS business or an investment platform that's digital, you're going to be taking a hit because the market is not particularly fond of big cash burn companies right now. Kelly, you've been in the industry for a long time, since before the last big bust of 2000. So many people are tempted to try to figure out what's happening right now by either comparing it to 2000 or potentially 2018, which I think was such a minor blip in Silicon Valley. But I'm wondering how you are thinking about this. Like you said at the beginning of this call, it seems like there's so much external stuff that's happening, Ukraine, interest rates. But of course, we also just saw some crazy, crazy investing happening, Tiger, SoftBank, not exclusively, but largely driving up these valuations exponentially over a span of months. Do you think what we're experiencing now compares to anything in the past? How are you thinking about it? Well, I cracked up when I saw somebody roll out the old Sequoia email that went out a few years ago. Alex, I know you know too which one I'm talking about, about the world is coming to an end, conserve your cash, fire everybody. That thing's rolling around again. And I look back at that and and I just have to say, that didn't happen. What they said was going to happen did not happen. And if I look back in 1999, I should tell you that I was on a roadshow going public on NASDAQ when the market cratered in April of 2000. And my company was going public with a valuation of about 800 million. And we had revenues of about 56 million. Most of the companies that got crushed in the 99, 2000 era were companies with very low revenue and really had no business being public companies. This is an extremely different condition now because these companies, including Forge, we went out in our public year with $125 million of revenue and our valuation on our offering was a billion six. So if you look at the math on a forward basis, we were trading at 10.6 times forward revenue. That was sort of our proposition. And we just got out, like I said, in March. I think what's happening now is we're seeing a perfect storm of a potential recession. If you listen to Jamie Dimon a couple of days ago, he said, there's a hurricane coming. We don't know if it's a category five or a category two. We've got interest rates going through the roof and we got a crazy war. So I think we're looking at kind of a perfect storm right now. The only question is, is the US consumer able to buy its way out of it? Uh, Are we resilient enough, both financially and emotionally to see past it? Or will people get really, really scared? And I think the war is one of those X factor things that people just don't know how much that will escalate. But I think this is a kind of a unique time. But I also think that if you're a company building the kind of businesses that are changing the world at revenue scales of the 1300 unicorns that we see, I was just looking at eToro the other day. These companies have enormous revenues in huge markets doing global disruption. So they're going to be around and they may be overvalued for a while and it gets settled or or, or we see at least a pause in escalation of valuation. But there's a reason why Tiger and some of these companies deployed billions in pre-IPO. The returns are I- impossible to dispute. It's just a matter of when will the markets come back and confidence come back. Kelly, this is a little bit of a off the beaten track question, but are any of the institutions that are on your platform coming to you and asking you if you can sell their stakes in VC firms? Yes. Yes. We see secondary interests in selling and buying positions from venture investors. And we've been seeing that for three or four years. I'm not sure how big of a business that is, but certainly if you're an LP and LP secondaries have been around for a while. And even if you're not interested in selling your position in a venture holding, there's a tremendous interest by LPs to look at some of the data that Forge has on the underlying holdings of their portfolio. So if you subscribe to Forge Intelligence and you're in, pick your favorite venture 
firm, if you wanted to look into the portfolio that they hold, you could take a look at where that trades. You could take a look at bids and asks on the underlying holdings. And you may talk to your GP over there and say, hey, should we consider selling a piece of one of our holdings? Back a couple of years ago, a, a big venture firm that was on the cap table of Peloton sold a $75 million position before the IPO. Another big VC sold a huge position in Slack before the IPO. And I'm talking about 50 to $100 million positions. So that's happening. And I can see that happening now, depending on whether they're capital raising or depending on whether they need liquidity or they got fear in their LP base. Do you have any thoughts about Tiger? It's hard to imagine Tiger Global going away, but it seems like they are in a really tough spot right now. Well, look, they're holding big positions across a whole bunch of different unicorns. And if I look at that last round data, depending on where they bought in, one of the big, big themes we talk about is go early. If you're going early and you went early across your portfolio or for most of it, you'd probably be okay. But if you wrote all those checks <laughs> at the highest possible point in the market, then you may have to wait for a while. I guess I just fundamentally believe that if you've been investing in the penultimate round before a company goes public for the last three to five years, you're probably okay with a little bit of time. It's when you go and put $5 billion into WeWork at $40 billion, and it's really worth eight that you're in trouble. And how many of those have they done? I mean, SoftBank did one. I don't know how many they did beyond that, but that was a write down from 40 to $8 billion. And we could see that on the platform. We could see WeWork trading at $8 billion when there was press about it being valued at 40 we were laughing. Oh, yeah, but it does seem like a lot of these guys were working up their own deals, not just SoftBank. Anyway, Kelly, okay, I really am going to let you go now. Okay, thank you. Right. Good talking to you. Good to, good to talk to you, Alex. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening. And thanks especially to Seed Invest, our sponsor for this week's episode. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.